0: Hey Vanessa
1: Hi Dom How goes it?
0: It goes well It goes well
1: Oh look at you with a positive answer how off-brand. Back to the caves with you <laughs> until you feel worse.
0: I I <laughs> took a nap after three days in a row of not... Ah. Three nights in a row of not sleeping. Wow. And the nap, I'm, like... I'm working on a theory, a new theory. That sleep...
1: Is good for you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like nap is very much Russian roulette, though. Like... It can destroy you or it can make you. to got to roll that nap dice <laughs> sometimes. So
0: today we have Eli Lake in two parts, I yes. guess.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, it's mostly part one and then there's like a post script. Right,
0: some, some coda. Well, Eli is a social commentator of many topics. He used to write for Bloomberg Opinion and currently writes for the New York Sun.
1: He has a great podcast called The Reeducation with Eli Lake.
0: Yeah, and which you all should listen to cuz it's fantastic. It starts with a well-produced monologue that is basically polished opinions that are always fascinating. Often uh, <laughs> argument inducing, but fascinating to listen to he he
1: he did admit that he occasionally likes to troll for the funds for the funds of it who does not who does really.
0: <laughs> he also came into it without even trying to suss out where you and I are politically, which is great because that's that that would have given him a headache but it's like but it's it's nice it's just like i'm 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 just in for the conversation so i I've been waiting for a while to try to get him on because I wanted the excuse. I ended up saying, you know what there's never going to be a good time, so I just brought them on, and then the Kanye, oh sorry, Yi, um, controversy happened, and the. Um, what else did we talk about?
1: The Israeli elections. The
0: Israeli elections and a variety of topics that Eli was perfect for. So we talked to him about the role of the artist as a political commentator.
1: Or lack thereof. Or lack
0: thereof. Uh, the line between politics, morality, and mm. art and creativity. Bit of history of the Israeli elections, of course. Some political punditry when it came to the, the midterms, which is also why um, we invited him after the midterms to record a little tale to the conversation to, uh, to reflect on how well his predictions panned out. Spoiler, both he and I were mostly mm. wrong.
1: So it's fun to have him back to, to reflect on... The wrong, the wrongness. Uh, one thing I will note too, for the person who is not as up on their Israeli politics, I will say that Adam and Eli's conversation was a little bit more advanced level. So I do recommend <laughs> um, first checking out Adam did a great uh, episode for The Dispatch, which is kind of like your 101 to Israeli politics, called BB's Back Baby. Is that what it was called? Yep. Called Bibi's Back Baby. Check that out first, I would say, if you're if you are in, into Israeli politics. We'll drop a
0: link in the show notes. Yeah,
1: and then with that, you'll have the primer that you need to hope follow along on Adam and Eli uh, going back and forth on these. Yeah, it very quickly
0: words. devolved, uh, the Israeli conversation devolved into two Jews um, arguing about Israel while Vanessa stares intently.
1: <laughs> trying to follow the conversation. Scratching her
0: chin with, exactly. mm, with a <laughs> waspy stolidity.
1: Hey, I'm not a wasp, despite my appearance.
0: You have that Catholic blood.
1: I come from Catholic lineage. (laughs) All the guilt is of my domain. Guilt is the. And as folks are checking us out on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast player of choice, uh, you should also check out another podcast called Preconceived. We've talked about them before, and they're still kind of a a partner of ours.
0: Yeah, it's hosted by Zale Matnick, and uh, we think there's... Probably a lot of audience overlap there because his focus is taking, as the title suggests, preconceived notions and try to understand why we hold them and how to break out of them. Shattering thought patterns and breaking out of our epistemic molds. It's kind of the uncertain thing thing, right? And uh, Zale has a variety of great guests. You can just scroll through the catalog and see. Authors, thinkers, scientists, psychologists, researchers, the lot. Vanessa, do you have a recommended episode?
1: Uh, Episode 66 called Unorthodox, Leaving Extremist Religion with Gene Steinberg. Lots to explore and check out with preconceived. So go forth.
0: So that's it. You know the drill. Follow us on uncertain.subsec.com to get both the episodes and the newsletters. You can give us a few schmeckles to get the extra content. And if you want to support us further, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts go a long way.
1: Oh, that's the way to do it. Five stars. And with that... Eli Lake.
0: Just recent happenings kind of like collided and gave me a gazillion excuses in one week to to bring you on. So I actually don't know where to start. There are the areas that I originally wanted to talk to you about, but you also have a generalist perspective on a variety of cultural phenomena. And so I'm just going to throw out... A bunch of buckets, and you can pick the first one to start with. So we have the artist formerly known as Kanye. We have um, Elon Musk. I think it's going to fall into it. We have neoconservatism, and we have the Israeli elections. Um, am I missing uh, something? Did you
1: want to? You had you had texted me earlier that you might want to talk about some like foreign policy stuff and or Mueller investigation. It, it falls
0: under the neoconservative okay. bucket, I think. Okay, I suppose. Um, okay. And if there's something particularly um, on your mind, aggravating or pleasing, maybe.
2: Oh, well, I just uh, published my episode on the Israeli elections called Red Wave Over Israel, where I, I don't know if you've listened to it. I'm very, I'm very happy with that episode and the, especially particularly the monologue. Sorry to, that sounds immodest, <laughs> but um, I tried, tackled the hard thing, which is uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir and his party, yep. uh, which is... Uh, translated i guess into jewish might or jewish, jewish power. might yeah
0: I, I i literally just recorded an episode for uh the dispatch podcast about the same topic um and so it's like it's on my mind as well like literally five minutes before starting i guess this is a lot of the israeli minded people it's on their mind and for in summary the ben Gvir's party is the jewish nationalism party it's um, extreme, far-religious messianic right, a uh, faction in Israeli politics that has been anathematized since late 80s um, and has now been resurgent and laundered back into politics by um, the machinations of the uh, Netanyahu government and the charisma of Ben Gvir himself.
2: I think that's basically right, yeah. It's, it's, I, I think it's fair to say it's, like it's Marikahana-inspired. And my episode that, uh, on this, spends a bit of time looking at Kahana and the Jewish Defense League and his migration, uh, politically speaking, to what I, what I call, you know, he, I would say he died as a Judeo-fascist. Mayor Kahana did. He favored the policy of transfer, which is the forced expulsion of Israeli Arabs uh, from what he considered to be the land of Israel, um, and that is, that is eth- obviously ethnic cleansing. Now, Itamar Ben-Gavir doesn't go that far. Uh, What he says is that he wants to expel disloyal Arabs. um, And because he's somewhat loose in the definition of what a disloyal Arab is, I believe it allows for what I would say are kind of reasonable non-racist Israelis to project that he is being reasonable. And it allows for fanatic racist Israelis to say, oh, he's signaling to us.
0: That's the beauty of the word disloyalty in politics, yeah. though, right? You can use it as a blanket to cover whoever they are.
2: Correct. And that it's a typical demagogue's trick, which is you say something that is provocative and vague, and then you act offended or persecuted when somebody says what you've suggested is barbaric.
0: How dare you claim that I'm I'm saying that all dissidents should be thrown in prison? I'm not saying that at all. But this dissident, however, definitely deserves being trapped. But I mean,
2: um, that, okay, now to steel man it, because I mean, I'm deeply uncomfortable. But on the other hand, there are terrorists in Israel who do things that are awful. And there, you know, there have been spates of, you know, I, I don't know what you call maybe call them terror waves. I mean, like a few years back, there was something called the Stabbing Intifada, where People like Palestinians inspired by social media would just like at random stab Jews. And okay, so that's terrible. If you're caught, you know, doing that, you should probably, I mean, you know, you should go to prison, obviously, at the very least. And
0: in context, I grew up in Jerusalem during the second intifada. I had buses explode right outside of my high school and friends blow up. I have no particular um, <laughs> sympathy for terrorism of any kind, no matter under what guise, of course, and, uh, and, yeah. and in what kind of legitimation. However, <laughs> the the idea that Arab Israelis who, for whatever reason, for whatever type of radicalization, should be treated in extrajudicial ways is totally unco- deeply uncomfortable to me, and that that's the implication.
2: This is the irony: is that. Part of what Ben Gavir is saying is that the Jewish state has not protected Jewish citizens. I mean, the, the line that he keeps going back to is that Jews are treated as guests in their own homeland. Which is absurd. Come on. It's uh, a like, demagogic. It's demagogic.
0: Like you can, talking about uh, the American border, for instance, You can Trump being a demagogue and everything, yeah. you can talk about how he's over-heightening the danger of the border, maybe. But it's absolutely true that American politicians have abdicated their responsibility to enforce border control in the South. That's just a disaster. And it's not just Democrats' fault, for that matter. But when you talk about Israeli security, and to claim that the Israeli machine has been abandoning Jews for slaughter or anything like that is absurd. Israel is... In many ways, shockingly safe nowadays because of heightened security. Now, of course, there has been some upheaval recently, which has been driven more by civil uprising in the Arab Israeli communities, the knife intifada, and um, most recently the um, the riots in Lod and around the country. Those were a shock to the system because of how radicalized people who have until now been considered. Integrated or assimilated into society to some extent, um, have turned. So it was a shock, but you need to go a long way to claim that this therefore proves that Israelis are being treated as guests in their own land.
2: Well, the, 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 there's an irony, of course, because Kahana's original Jewish Defense League and people inspired by Kahana after his death, like Baruch Goldstein, were themselves, like at times, terrorists. I mean, Jewish Defense League bombed Soviet you know, diplomatic consulates and things like that, and also Arab consulates in the name of what they believe was sort of a just more just cause. And And Bob
0: Goldstein who showed is one
2: of the fiends of Jewish history. I mean one of the worst.
0: And Ben Veer had his um his image plastered on his wall for until very recently.
2: Yeah, no, and and, and that, you know, that makes him a am I allowed to curse on this? Like yes. it's, it's a piece of shit thing to do. So Um, I end it, though, by saying, listen, the one thing we can say is that Ben Gavir now is going to be part of a ruling coalition. His his party won 14 seats. And
1: And just for context, is 14 seats like a a lot? Is that like...
2: Yes. He's the third
0: largest party out of 10 who have um, made it through the cutoff in the Israeli election. Okay,
1: so this is... He's coming in with power behind him.
2: Well, and also just to put in some context... The first run, uh, when Kahana was alive, I mean, here's an irony: Kahana, Judeo fascist, murdered by an Islamo fascist in 1990 in New York City. But when Kahana was alive, um, you know, he his high watermark for the Cock Party was one Knesset seat, um, and the Likud and the Labor Party, the two dominant parties in Israeli politics, conspired to screw over Kahana and his party by successfully passing a law that made it, you know, that barred him and the party from running in 1988. Um, this time around, the um, Otsma Yehudit was courted by Netanyahu initially in 2018. And so you didn't have, like, Menachem Begin famously would leave the Knesset when Marikahana spoke. Uh, you, you didn't want to even acknowledge it. And so there is something there with like Netanyahu sort of making them kosher and encouraging people to sort of vote for various joint lists so he could have a right-wing coalition. So that's an important point to make. On the other hand, you know, Ben Kavir, his entire life, his entire adult life, he has been an agitator from the outside. He has had the luxury of being somebody who didn't have to make – who didn't have the responsibility of making having Hmm. power – so he's able to say kind of ridiculous things about the Jewish state without, you know, having to actually think about like, OK, well, now what would, what would you do? So mm. that is an opportunity maybe that will destroy him, maybe that he will moderate. I mean, I'm, his story isn't over yet. He's only 46 years old. So in that respect, what I'm saying is that if it's true that, you know, because he goes out of his way to say, listen, I'm not calling for the transfer of forced expulsion of Israeli Arabs as Kahana did. He says that over and over again. And. I'm not trying to make it seem like he's not it's not troubling and he doesn't I in you know in my monologue I mentioned all the stuff about Barbara Goldstein and everything like that. But I'm saying that this is a new experience. We don't know what he's going to do when he does have influence and power. And it may we may find out that he will be someone else. And I just would say that it's, maybe it's a kind of corollary, but there was a time when people thought Menachem Begin was a fascist. That was a hmm. famous letter from Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt. When he came to America, like on the eve of Israeli independence, and first of all, they were co- they were totally wrong about Menachem Begin. He was absolutely not a fascist. He was anti-fascist, and I can get into that at another point. But
0: and, and for context, Menachem Begin is the first prime minister in Israel that represented the Not Mapai party. Mapai party was the founding and ruling party for twenty years, was it? Yeah,
2: before Israeli independence, he was the rival of um, of Ben Gurion the kind of George Washington of Israel. And, you know, there were things that he was responsible for, such as, you know, his Etzel forces were responsible for the, bo- the bombing of the King David Hotel, which was British military headquarters. He he practiced guerrilla warfare against the British occupying forces, which at the time the Jewish community known as the Yeshuv was against. And this, and people said he was a fanatic because a lot of this, he was also, you could say the Etzel forces were, along with Ali Lehi we responsible for the Darius scene massacre which to this day is kind of you know is kind of part of his legacy and that had that led to this review sort of that like oh this guy's a sort of horrible fascist well it turns out that he was a, he was an extremist I wouldn't I would I would say I guess you could say he's an extremist but he wasn't
0: involved in the in these early days he was part of the extremist factions of the Israeli independence movement
2: yeah I but yeah extremist is kind of a loaded word but what I would say is that He, he was, he, he had a foul odor among the kind of American Zionists at the time. And there's certainly Ben-Gurion despised him, you know, in these, in these days. And anyway, throughout the course of his life, this was in his thirties, like he proved that he was not only, you know, he was a great Zionist and a great kind of Israeli patriot, but he, he was the one who ended up making peace with Anwar Sadat, uh, which is the first major peace deal that Israel signed with one of its Arab neighbors, um, you know, his decision uh, when there was an arm shipment known as the, Alta, on a ship called the Altalena, which is a famous scene, like, you know, kind of where there was a real danger in the beginning of Israel that you would have different, you wouldn't have a single, a single monopoly of violence. You wouldn't have a single IDF, which is the Israel Defense Forces. And there was but this- paramilitaries. Arm, yeah, there's an arms shipment and there was a big debate over like whether some of the guns should go to like, you know, the Begin-affiliated Etzel versus the Haganah. And there was a Jews fired on Jews. The, you know, there was the, the Haganah fired on the ship. There were casualties. It could have been a civil war at the very moment of Jewish independence. And instead, it turned out that Begin had the kind of courage and, and vision to stand down and stand down his forces and his loyalists. And as a result, there, we, there was a, you avoided that kind of civil war.
0: So um, unthinkable. Yeah. Just to add some more color to it, this is a little irony of history because we like ironies in this conversation that the Mapai Party that was a socialist and worker party was unsurprisingly much representative of the elite culture at the time of Israel. Totally. And it was Begin who was the first spokesperson for the people who really were second class at the time, the, the Mizrahi Jews and a lot of the actual working class of Israel, even though his party was technically in favor of more um, market liberalization.
2: That's right. That's right. And anyway, there's a its a fa- he's a fascinating figure. And my point only in sort of raising is I don't want to even I'm not I'm not saying it tomorrow. Oh, Vanessa's expression is just how the fuck did I get stuck? in? Oh, sorry, this we, we'll talk about Kanye soon enough if this is not <laughs> interesting. But the, the thing Marty is that Edwards. Itamar Ben-Gavir's story is not yet written. And he has an mm-hmm. opportunity to mm-hmm. prove many people like myself who think this guy is kind of a proto-fascist wrong. Mm. Even though I'm not I'm not holding my breath, but I'm saying that. You know, there's a lot of stuff here. And and by the way, I could totally see Netanyahu being the cynical Nixonian figure that he is turning on these religious Zionists and turning on this party and saying, you guys are too extreme. Mm. And then having the kind of, you know, and pivoting and like, you know, trying to 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 break off, say, I don't know, the Avigdor-Lieberman faction of the anti-BB coalition.
0: We were, ju- again, this is something that we were just talking about. Um, the idea that... Netanyahu is necessarily going to create th- this coalition, the expected far-right coalition, misunderstands Netanyahu because Netanyahu is not really a far-right leader. He, he is the king of status quo, and he is one of the most impressive politicians in terms of really being able to hold 17 different uh, uh, plates in the air. Yep. And he there is a non-zero chance that he leverages the fact that there is a threat of a religious messianic takeover of the politics and say, hey, look, uh, Lapid, Gans, whoever, the centrists and the r- r- uh, center-right parties, I know you hate me. I know you literally formed a government to oust me last year, but it's either you join me and give me what I want in terms of my uh, judicial reform, et cetera, et cetera, or... I'm making deals with the Kahanists. So what is it going to be?
2: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a fascinating thing. I, I, I didn't mean to sort of, I don't want to be naive about it. Uh, there's a lot of really bad things about Ismar ben mm. but what I am yeah. saying is that it's funny how once you see some of these outsiders get power, they can become very different people. And you see it mm. all the time, by the way. I mean, if you look at like the Tea Party in American politics, right? And then you compare that to the MAGA movement, Hmm. it's like everybody you can draw lines no I'm just saying it's like it's fascinating to me to see what happens to political figures that begin their career as these firebrands on the outside and then once they have power they become you find them they kind of get moderated and corrupted it's just it's like a cycle of things
0: yeah but then you have cases like take Ted Cruz has a start in the tea party talking about small government and respecting the constitution and by 2020 completely throwing all of that away by January 6th specifically. And you can start thinking that maybe it's really just about rank populism and his taste for arsonism that's guiding him.
2: Mm, yeah, but he wants power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, don't they all? <laughs> no, but I mean, like, he really wants power. He wants <laughs> that's he's that's he's got his eye on the prize, you know, he's <laughs>
1: Wait, I want to just circle back to make sure I understand. You know, <laughs> the the beginning of this conversation, which is where do we derive <laughs> the popularity of this uh of, of this movement now that's taking over the uh, the, the Israeli par- parliament? Here, is it parliament? You
2: you, you got to read a piece from Armin Rosen in Tablet Magazine, which is a profile mm-hmm. of Ben Gavir. He was just in Israel and he interviewed him too.
0: Phenomenal piece. You got to
2: read that because okay. that re- I learned so much from it. I got a shout out to Armin Rosen. You guys should have him on this podcast. He's so good. That piece really puts it out there. And when he says is, there's a lot of people, and I talked to people in Israel about this too, by the way, who were not Kahanists and aren't settlers, but for whatever reason, they're like, listen, this tech miracle in Israel kind of left us behind and like, you know, rents mm. are too damn high and we can't afford a place. And you know, every nothing seems to, you know, there's a, there's a kind of dissatisfaction on the losers in the tech economy in Israel. Mm. Some of it is that, some of it is also that there really has been some insecurity or a sense of insecurity, similar to America, like where there's crime you might not be able to show it with statistics, but there, you know, in the 2021 war with Gaza, there were these sorts of, I don't know, like there were, there were moments where like, you know, cause a lot of the cities are in, in Israel and towns are called mixed. They have Arab and Jewish, Jewish people, yeah. and there was a concern that, like you know, there were some of the neighbors were you know reacting to the latest war in such a way that there was a sense of insecurity. There was, a yeah, little there bit were
0: of, there were riots in in cities that yeah. I don't remember seeing in my time. So yeah, it's it's it it I, I can understand that anxiety, but it's interesting about the more populist economic insecurity point because it's true and that's hardly discussed because you see that under the netanyahu 12 years of market liberalization and the ascent of tech israel has turned from an economic backwater to one of the world's top 20 economies but it has kind of become a, a single crop state like it only does tech there is nothing else if you want to have like the the um the ability to have a living wage in any other industry, but but tech is strained at best, and, oh, not, and the natural gas and, or natural. Sure, if you if you happen to own national gas, uh, natural gas, or be part of the uh, extraction efforts, then yeah. yes, you make you make good money. Um, mm. but but it's true, and though it is happening here as well, I see the um, parallels
1: here for sure. Yeah. I don't. The only people I know who are comfortable in making a good living are in tech right now. Anyone I know who took a different path is struggling. So Bo Trump. Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, so it sounds like that the, this politician is tapping into kind of the currents that are happening. The people feel left behind. It sounds like he also has some like Netanyahu shine a bit in, in recent. And so there's, these things are converging to make him popular.
2: Yeah. And he has this look like he's schlubby, but <laughs> like, he looks like a common man. Like if you um, look at Yair Lapid, the, the last prime minister, or the Karen Prime Minister, I guess, who's about to lose his coalition. Um, you know, he's like really in shape. He's very yeah. handsome and charismatic, and like you look at like Intamar Ben Gavir, and he does look like like looks like like Bluto from Animal House. I mean, like he's just like, you know, he's a slub, But, <laughs> um, you know, and I think there is something that appeals to it. I do think that he taps into something that's deep in like the Israeli soul, which is he says that line that Jews should not be treated as guests in their own homeland. And that goes back to Begin. And it goes back to, it goes back to something really deep about Zionism. Like we're going to demonstrate that this is our homeland. And that sense that like, you know, in the shadow of the Holocaust, like the Jewish people, their resilience, and we're not going to be pushed around. And that gets to something that's like, hard for me as a diaspora Jew to appreciate. Although I can appreciate it kind of by knowing history, but like it's, I think that that he's, he's kind of stirring that up as well.
0: It's interesting about the schlebbiness that you pointed out. Yeah. It, it does have a kind of a, a Yui Long charm. Yes. In his very good.
2: That was smart. That was very smart. <laughs> yes. Another demagogue, another populist. Mm. <laughs> What did he say? He said, "Like you know, spoils for my friends." And well, well yep. what do your enemies get? Good government. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, okay, so that was that was our Israeli bucket. <laughs> um, talking about um, charisma. Let's talk about Yay. Sure. So, so is it Yay? You are the you are the yeah, super it's, fan. Yeah, it's Yay. It's Yay.
2: yay. I yay. guess I'm a super fan. I really do think he's a genius, and um, I appreciate. His music. I don't have a feel for his footwear. Hmm. Uh, I should say I'm not a sneakerhead, so it's like that. That to me is like I don't know. I guess
0: I'm generally not into swag.
2: Yeah, I'm not into swag as much yeah. either. I can't really. So it's hard for me to judge his fashion. Um, it's not my style, but like again, I don't want to like. It's hard. I can't quite understand that. I do think he's a fascinating figure because I do think he's he's a legit musical genius who has chosen. To also be a celebrity in the reality television space, which I had so I always associated with, that's fame for people with no talent, right? And here's a guy who's bursting with talent, who seems almost more interested in becoming famous in that in that context, which I, which I have to say, is really interesting. <laughs> like why he, you know, I mean, the fact that he had this marriage to Kim Kardashian. And what's Kim Kardashian's great skill? And I shouldn't say this because my wife is like huge, like she she loves that stuff, but like <laughs> I don't get it. You know, like
0: But I, I wanna uh drill into your uh your claim, your bold claim of uh he's genius. Um I don't actually dispute it, but there is a right and wrong answer as to why he's a genius. So what's yours?
2: Oh, because he's in my view, um well David Samuels wrote a famous piece about him at the height of his like cultural power called American Mozart. I say that Yay is the American Miles Davis, which is to say for the genre of hip hop music, I think he's changed it maybe three or four or five times in the way that Miles changed j- jazz uh, over the course of his career. And his, so, and, and it also, by the way, this is very similar to like someone like Bob Dylan, another genius who just as everybody was like really getting into like when the Dylan's folk sound, he goes electric. And just as everyone's getting into electric, he decides to put out a bunch of country, a couple country records. And this is like, they're into that sound. He decides he's going to find Jesus and do Christian rock. I, it's, and I love that in that he, he constantly is, he's, he's always furtive and moving on to the next thing. And his catalog and his output reflects that. So he, you know, comes on the scene as a producer. He makes, he's probably like the last great producer of the golden era of hip hop in the 1990s. you know, he, he meets up, he, he hooks up with Jay-Z. You listen to an album like The Blueprint or The Black Album, you know, Kanye's like all over that. And then, you know, his first album, College Dropout, it's just a stone-cold classic. And the, the two that he does after that are kind of similar, and they're, and they're they but they get more intricate and he adds more layers. And you can hear, like on the second album, there's a song called We Major, where there's just a breakdown, which is a beautiful piece of original music. Sounds like it could have been on a Stevie Wonder record. Then he does 808s and Heartbreak by, the, by pitch filtering his voice and then using it and, and exploring how he can use his voice and create and like almost become, you know, t- to bend it in ways that, are, that, that make it sound more computer and robotic, which we hear, you know, auto-tune as, and that style with T-Pain and everything else like that. But well, Kanye really kind of does that in the hip-hop world before almost everybody else. And then, you know, you have something like my... I always—it's my dark, twisted, beautiful fantasy. My beautiful, dark twist. I forget exactly what the—that record is. Maybe the greatest hip hop record ever made. It's much more than just taking these samples and then rapping over it. He's creating symphonies uh, with little pieces of sound. He's like a brilliant collage artist. Um, You know, I in my monologue on Kanye that I released a couple weeks ago, in the middle of all this stuff, and I talked about. I kind of try to draw the similarity with Ezra Pound, but it's this idea that when you're exploring, you know, like when you think of Ezra Pound's epic poem, The Kantos, literary professors, people who are real scholars on this will say, it's like a kind of almost a catalog or like a, a journal of one man's, like really deep reading of stuff. Like it's his interaction with these texts. And there's another thing, which I didn't put in the monologue, but I think is really interesting that, uh, you know, there's a great CIA, um, a really important kind of like one of the founders of the CIA, James Jesus Angleton, who when he was at Yale was started a, a poetry review and he was in touch with Ezra Pound. And sometimes he would, he would ask Ezra Pound for contributions, but sometimes Ezra Pound would just give him quotes from other stuff he was reading.
1: Mm. Well,
2: that's very, it strikes me. And that's a version of what hip hop producers do. They, mm. they take from sounds and things from before and they create something new out of it. And that is what and Kanye is brilliant at that. And he will take, you know, a version of a song and then add certain things. And, like, that's that's musical genius. So he does the My Darkness, which I think is a great high watermark for him. And then, you know, he keeps moving. I mean, the next one of note to me is Yeezus, which is a really grimy, almost post-industrial record. It doesn't even in some ways sound like rap. Um, and that takes a lot. And then I really like, you know... This is, it, it's debatable, but I think he has another resurgence in the Trump era after he comes out as a Trump guy. Uh, he releases an album called Yay, and then Kids See Ghosts, and then Jesus is King. Those three records, I think, are absolutely brilliant. I like that he is somebody who is, an, is a hip-hop artist who, as a rapper, is, you know, from the very beginning with Jesus Walks, he, he's bringing in religious themes and things that normally we just don't associate with it. And so he's got a, for me, um, an amazing kind of catalog. I'm still absorbing the two Donda releases that he's done. I find the first one is really good. I, you know, but anyway, I I think he continues to put out quality work. That's kind of, if you think about it, that alone put out relevant and important records since he started putting them out in like 2003, 2004. And now it's almost 20 years later. That's a kind of miracle too, if you think about the shelf life and relevancy. Right. I mean, Jay I guess he put out 414, but I don't know that Jay Z after after the Black album. I would say that you know then it's a, it's very uneven. Kanye is still putting out great stuff, so
1: I was gonna just start getting into the, this issue of the the art ver- artist versus the uh, art politics and the or politics, yeah. yeah. And right, it, and
0: Ezra Pound is a good segue.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is a topic that you talk about a lot in your podcast. I think you've had a couple yeah. episodes like teasing out um, to what extent we want to hold artists accountable for what they say politically versus do we just ignore it and and only focus on the art and 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 relate to the artist via the art in the way that is more meaningful and useful to our time and kind of find perhaps their political leanings irrelevant. Um, I do think that there's there. It, it, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that there's like a hierarchy when we're talking about artists. And there's the there's the kind of celebrity that you were talking about earlier of like no talent, celebrity, no talent, Mm -hmm. celebrity with talent and genius. And I feel like we are much more likely to give a pass to the genius for having. Uh, <laughs> uh questionable political ideologies sure. because we want to interact with them and their their genius level work is so worth talking whereas when you get into the middle place it's you get into a bit of a murkier category now because it's like how talented are they do we justify it versus do we do we just stop buying their work you know what i'm saying like there's a it's i feel like it's more difficult to have this conversation when you're talking about not the geniuses
2: well, I, I it, yeah, and it's 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 how do you know, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I, it's hard to say because it's like if you're a genius, you're probably going to have a huge amount of work, but you know, I guess there's some there's some artists who produce a lot of work and none of it's good. <laughs> I mean, like uh, in, in one of my earliest episodes called "The Art and the Artist," I I led with the idea of Kenny G being a phenomenally great guy by all accounts. By the way, Kenny G I think makes terrible schlock. <laughs> But you know, listen. The, he's a great guy. He's a great dad. Scratch golfer. Nice investor. Totally great with his fans, and there are legions of them. And they, you know, it's there's a lot of people with bad taste. They all, but Kenny G is really good to all of them, and they, um, he just seems like a great guy. And yet, one
0: needs to cater to the people with bad taste.
2: Yeah, exactly. But and yet, like if you know, when you go through like the legends of jazz music, like Charlie Parker, terrible guy, you know. Mm. I like to think about the Beatles because by all accounts, um, Paul McCartney is a genius and a great guy. Like by all accounts, Paul McCartney's a really good guy. John Lennon, terrible guy, but essential. You know, I mean so what are you gonna do? So anyway, this so but I totally take your point. And it's you can't really know. And I, I would rather be more tolerant than less tolerant. My issue is like on the one hand, if you're just talking about like what you choose to listen to, if you don't want to listen to R. Kelly anymore, I totally understand what R. Kelly did is terrible. Mm-hmm. I think R. Kelly is in the genius category. He's put out a lot of great stuff. But it's, that's a personal choice. When it gets to coordinated campaigns that are going to pressure streamers or platforms or radio stations or whatever it is to basically try to create something that's Dream Hampton, uh, the journalist called a cultural death.
0: Mm.
2: Well, first of all, who are we punishing when we do that? Are we punishing the artists that are still alive? Well, to a certain extent, yes. But we're also kind of punishing us considering the fact that, you know, I mean, listen, R. Kelly should be in jail right now for what he did. But if if there was a jailhouse recording studio, I bet he could probably put together a banger in an afternoon. Let's Mm. be honest. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. just, that's, Some people have it, some people don't. Okay. Um, And that's how I felt like about why Ezra Pound was such an interesting story. Mm. Because if you go back, and I did listen to a lot of his radio addresses when he was, you know, help broadcasting on Mussolini's Radio Roma, and I thought more and more as I was listening to him, like, uh, this is not convincing anybody. This is nuts, and it's fascinating because he's a great, he's an amazing poet, maybe one of the greatest poets to ever live in the English language, but this is not, it's not like he's an effective propagandist. I mean, I can't imagine an American- Would it have mattered
0: ge- if he were? Would it change your opinion on
2: him? No, it, it. on this I'm pretty clear. Like, I just think that you gotta just let him cook even though he's got horrible politics and criticizes politics. But my thing is that like, it's interesting is that he was tried in absentia and convicted for treason, which would get you- executed normally but then to spare his execution he was declared insane and he spent like 13 years in a mental institution which i would imagine was kind of a hindrance to his creative work and it strikes me as like again who are we punishing you know i mean because we're going to read ezra pound's poetry for centuries um and did we not get as much poetry from Ezra Pound as a result of that? And by the way, when he was through with his experience in the mental institution, as I say it in that in the thing, he was a broken man. And he kind of had, soon after went into the last 10 years of his life, basically kind of a self-imposed silence and wouldn't barely speak. Okay. So before I, I want
0: to actually play devil's advocate to what you just said. Okay. Before that, let me just like do the throat clearing for myself. I Every once in a while when I talk about, um, you know, you can read J.K. Rowling without getting angry about this and people would say, oh, you're not uh, transgender yourself. You don't know how it affects your sexuality. Like, oh, sure, fair enough. Sure, whatever. I don't know. With, yeah, I feel like, okay, he's talking about the Jews and I'm part of this satanic cabal that he's talking about. So I I can... A test that i don't give a shit um is it do i think that there is potential social problems associated with it yes and we'll get to that but does it affect my listening of um my dark beautiful twisted trad uh whatever uh, not at all i i hear it for what it is and maybe it's because i've been trained first of all as a jew i think if you give up on all rabid anti Semites, you lose half of literature and yep, half of yep, classical yep, music. Yep, yep, and yep, I'm yep. like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not passing on on the good stuff. I'm I'm gonna read Dostoevsky and I'm gonna read The Master and Marguerite and and fuck you. I'm gonna enjoy it. Yeah. I'm not gonna enjoy Wagner because I find him dull, but too much pathos for me, but not because of the antisemitism. So that's my throat clearing. And, and with uh, Ye's current outbursts, and we didn't actually set it up, but I assume that people are plugged enough to know that he has been talking not just mild antisemitism, but you know, textbook antisemitism. Mm-hmm. Uh, textbook. textbook. It's like almost a joke. It's like literally reading the cliches from the dictionary definition of Jew propaganda. So I don't care does not affect my emotional um, um, connection to his work. But to play play devil's advocate, your assumption in saying, who does it hurt uh, when we punish these artists? It actually implying that it actually hurts us. We hurt ourselves. We hurt the culture by ostracizing these.
2: um, Well, uh, let's be specific. I don't, if, if you want to, I don't think we're hurting anybody. I think it's important to say, I like uh, I like Kanye's music, but this is anti-Semitic and he shouldn't right. say it. And criticize that. That's f- I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking no, about that. Course. I'm talking about of course. anything that... Is a
0: coordinated effort to limit their ability to express themselves.
2: Right. Either limit the distribution or affect them in such a way. Like if you put him in a mental institution, could Kanye... Still, I mean, I, it's hard for me to know, because I have never been in a mental institution and committed to that, but I would imagine that if you were a creative person and you couldn't leave a facility and you had to take certain drugs or whatever it was, that might affect your creative output. And yeah, I'm saying might that it' you,
0: your creativity. If you diminish
2: it's, the creativity yeah. of some of these pr- bad artists or problematic artists, then who is punished? It's the rest of us who enjoy their art.
1: But I know that there's a distinction between, like, when we're talking about R. Kelly versus Ezra Pound. Which is sure. the First time I've ever <laughs> made this comparison. Um, but I mean, we recognize that R. Kelly should be in jail, and we will take the 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 cultural hit because he has yes. done things that he needs to be in jail for, right? And we yes. as a culture have to say, well, I'll, unfortunately, we will be deprived of future R. Kelly songs. But that's law. Ezra- right. That's, that, that's a, the law. And, and I agree right. with you. That is yeah. that's
2: a matter of law. Yes. Right.
1: Versus Ezra Pound, it's it's a little more. Well, he
2: did he did violate. Violate the law technically.
1: Mm-hmm. And I guess the question is: To what extent is is are his political actions hurting us? And I think you could probably ask the same of of Yay, right? To what extent are them just espousing their political beliefs actually causing hurt in a way that they they are their creative output should be curbed because they need to be taken out of the the cultural sphere, for example.
2: That's Vanessa. That is a very very shrewd observation. Just want to say it was very good. I mean, I just, I, I don't think that there's, you, you can say, I don't know, if we would, I wouldn't call it political hurt because that's a, but I'm just saying they can, I, I, again, I don't think that there is such a, I don't think we should fra- frame it that way. If, if, you know, Norman Mailer famously stabbed his wife, mm-hmm. and I suppose if he was convicted by a jury of his peers, he should pay for that, Um, but Norman Mailer also, like, it's worth going back. Like there's a famous scene of like one of the early second wave feminist conferences. He gives a completely offensive speech in which anyway, well, we can curse on this. He talks about his like dick, but then I think he like makes reference that He has a dildo in his, face. It's, it's totally offensive and kind of like he was trolling. Okay. Mm, mm. And you know what? Like, It's really offensive and like I can totally understand it, but you know what, I just, you got to let him cook. He's a great novelist and Mm. essayist and uh, I don't have to co-sign on stuff. But Mm -hmm. um, so in my view, I distinguish between artists who violate the law and, you know, I think that everybody is equal under the law in our societies versus like these kinds of what makes a kind of crossing various kinds of cultural
1: Mm. Lines. So words are not sufficient.
2: It's not even about words versus like deeds or like. Mm-hmm. Something. It's not even that. It's more like I would. This is how I would describe it. It's 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 more that. Um, I'm not gonna. I can't. I gotta distinguish between whatever your politics are, whatever you're putting your energies into, anything like that. Um, it's like that is not gonna. That should not affect you know, the availability of your art and that it should stand on its own. And like the inverse of that is we who are not artistic geniuses, but who are in the cultural space, either as Mm. writers or whatever, like we should probably stop looking to these artists for our political guidance. Like why would we (laughs) care what Kanye West has to say about a lot of these things? And I realize, you know, it's easy for me to say that there are people who really do care, but like, we have to just get out of it. I mean, like, you know, I'm, I, I, can, I can fully understand the idea that my favorite recording artists are going to have terrible politics. That's normal. I get it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not asking the political leaders I most admire to record banger <laughs> hip hop tracks. You know what no, I mean? But, like,
0: but actually, <laughs> but actually there's a, uh, there's a nuance there because when we're talking about what Vanessa called in the lowest tier of celebrity, which is the no-talent celebrity, right? Then it's very easy to say, what do I care about what they have to say? What do I care about what they have to say about literally anything? Um, they exist to entertain me. They are, they are visual or auditory props. But when you're talking about somebody that you consider a genius, that implies that they did something that was... The, connected with your spirit with your soul with your inner world for sure in a meaningful way that and that's where morality exists when politicians in fact i don't no, expect to no, be no, moral no, guidance. No, no, no no
2: no 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 our mm-hmm. innermost soul like you know you got to accept man that there's these like animal spirits there's going to be things that art is going to show you that it's not going to be like you're going to want to see necessarily morality politics that exists on a different plane
0: when you're talking about No, it's morality and politics that are separate.
2: I agree, but I'm saying that arti- like something that's artistic greatness is not necessarily mm-hmm. going to adhere to what you think is the right morality. It's going to probably challenge it.
0: No, no, no. I didn't say it didn't say it would inform it. It's not pedagogical, yeah. but it touches the place where morality is informed, I think, to some extent. I, I the whole point experiencing masterpieces, masterworks in in literature is that they touch and challenge parts of your moral presuppositions, sometimes even affecting them to a change. They're, They're not divorced from the moral world.
2: Um... Yeah, I'm not I'm art. not enough of maybe of a philosopher. I have to mm. brush up on my philosophy. <laughs> I don't know about that. I kind of feel I don't like think philosophy. I, even I mean, think
0: of how you're impacted by works of literature and yeah. you, that you really admire. Do you just say, "Oh, this is just literature"? It opened my mind to experiences, but it didn't make me at all question some of my presuppositions.
2: Okay, that's fair. Great literature, yes, I think you're right. Great literature can change how you think about things, and it can have an, a downstream effect on your politics for sure. But the point that I would make in counter to that is that I want that realm of literature and art to be fluid enough that I'm not drawing boundaries based Mm -hmm. on what the downstream effect might be. Mm -hmm. You follow me? So it's like, I think it's okay. Like you're going to read some, I mean, mean, I'm trying to think of a a great piece of literature that had this effect on me. Like, I mean, I guess when I read like Orwell's Politics in the English Language in 1984 and Animal Farm. That certainly laid the groundwork for me in my anti-fascist politics today mm. or my small L liberal politics today for sure.
1: All the libertarians who read The Fountainhead.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, The Fountainhead's, you know, <laughs> it's funny, like when I was young and I read that, I was like, this is yeah, yeah, yeah. She's absolutely right. You know what I mean? Like there's everyone's a fucking sheep and I'm out here and like it's just that the world belongs to the winners. Ah! Then you like get a little older and you're like, "Uh, this is a little too much Ayn Rand." Yeah. It's very yeah. interesting thing about Ayn Rand is that she hated William F. Buckley. And William F. Buckley hated her, and so she was never really incorporated into the mainstream mm. conservative. She would be natural for the conservatives, right? She should be part of the conservatives, but that personal, you know, they, those two geniuses hated each other, so. Uh,
0: that figures. <laughs> but, like, for me, crime and
2: punishment. Sure. And,
0: and, and, again, written by a problematic author, and actually... Is
2: Dostoevsky now considered prim- problematic? I, I,
0: I don't know. I mean, people... I, <laughs> everyone's I, problematic. Everyone's problematic. Is it? Uh, but I consider... I consider it incredibly challenging morally, and certainly this is—it's not even not, not attempting to be a, a guidebook for ethics, but it did shape a lot of my appreciation of the human condition and how people approach justice, how people pervert justice in themselves. It taught me a lot about those th- those supposedly relegated realms of politics and morality.
2: Yeah. Okay. You know. You know. You know. you you've convinced me. That's a good, very good point. Especially on Eli, the lit- thank
0: you so much for joining us. <laughs> on, the,
2: on, the, on the literature point, that's a very, that's, that's an excellent point. I was thinking about what you're saying about like problematic authors. Mm-hmm. I've al- it always goes in one direction, doesn't it? Right. And I kind of want to do it in the other direction sometimes and be like, you know what? I still read Love and the- I still think we should read Love in the Time of Cholera, even though Gabriel Garcia Marquez was hoodwinked by Fidel Castro and went to his grave as a commie. Mm. Like you know what I mean? Like it's always mm-hmm. the other one. It's always the other direction. It was like, right. yeah, no, it's a really good novel, but you know, he was, you know, he's kind of a misogynist. Like, you know, Picasso was a really bad guy when he came in. Anyway. <laughs> I mean
0: <laughs> although I will I, say that lo, love in Times of Cholera was not the legitimate book. I, 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 you I didn't like I, it. I thought it was I, great. I, oh, I hate it. I love 100 Years of Solitude, my formative novel, but I that's not no Oh my god, you didn't like
2: Love in the Time of Cholera? It's a beautiful story. No, no. It's Chronicle a beautiful a story about finding love when you're like at the end of your life. What a God, I
0: hated the two main characters right. so right. fucking much when they finally got together. I like fuck you. I think one of them uh, leaves his wife for the. And I like, loved I it. preferred the wife. I like the wife. I don't like this. Listen, I read it
2: when I was a very young man uh, when I was <laughs> in Europe on a really long train <laughs> ride to the south of Portugal, but enchanted by the landscape. Yeah, and I was like in the middle of a really great uh, romantic affair at the time with this Australian <laughs> woman, and it was dope. I was like, this yeah. book is so good. <laughs> uh,
1: that's the amazing thing about literature; it's a hundred percent dependent on where you are in your life when you yeah. read I it. I right. think that's true. I think right. that's true.
2: I think it's true. But it's also, it's like, like that's what I, the other thing is. This, it's a secondary point on this, but it's like I want great writers and great artists to feel that they can create without um worrying that there's like somebody looking over their shoulder right who's going to like say they're problematic and try to cancel them because they're you're writing in the voice of a of a mexican-american when you're not a you know stop it Mm -hmm. let these artists be art let artists be let them cook and like deal with the artists it's if you think the art fails for its reasons and that's Important, you know what I mean, and I don't. I don't try to do that kind of criticism. I'm more. I mean, maybe I should get more into it as I get older. But like, that's fine. But don't don't tell me that the. And I I found that back to sort of to put it back circle back to Mm Yay, when he came out with this album called Yay, and I would encourage listeners who like good music to listen to it. The last four songs of it are brilliant, in my opinion, and. I thought this is a real artistic triumph. And the review in like the Daily Beast, my yeah. former publication, was so negative. And I thought it was only negative because of his, of, of Yay's mm. fucked up politics. And it didn't actually deal with them, with the art and the, the work that they were talking about. You
0: actually brought in something that I wanted to at least touch on, yeah. which is just a pet peeve of mine in the whole Yay traversy that. When Ye started ha, talking about ma-
1: Kanye reverse. Okay, no, it didn't work. <laughs> I tried and I failed. Good. Continue.
2: Controversial. Kanye. <laughs> Kanye verse Kanye ver- Verse. Con- Controversy. That's not that. Yeah.
0: When uh Ye went MAGA um and started, you know, trying to bring down the... Uh, I don't know norms, democratic Democrats norms, liberal norms, or push mm-hmm. back against stuff that that were taken for granted by the cultural elite. You suddenly saw people who <laughs> wrote, spoke, and and ranted about how much they hate rap. Talk about ah, this is this is a good artist, and that mm. embarrassed me and cringed yeah. me out so much. It's stop. There is something on the right specifically. If, if the if the left's problem is that they take for granted that they are the cultural hegemon, right? On, on the right, it's there's so much envy, cultural envy, that whenever an artist just winks at them, they cream their pants. Mm.
2: I think it's kind of a fair point. <laughs> I mean, in this case, in the case of Yay, I think he's he, he's a legit. I mean, like, I don't know, who did the Republicans have before Yay? Kid Rock. Mm. the Oak Ridge Boys. It's been lonely, especially in the musical space. If you're a Republican, you know what I mean? You don't... Five for fighting. That's another one that's like coming out for the GOP. Can you hear (laughs) a funny story about Kid Rock and the Republican Party? Sure. In 2004, I know, I'm an old guy now. In 2004, they wanted to have Kid Rock at the Republican convention. And it was vetoed at the last minute because he had a lyric about doing Barbara Bush in the tush.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Swear to God.
0: Oh, sweet days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sweet, innocent days. Uh, I, yeah.
1: I, unless you want to espouse no. upon this uh, this point, Ely. No, no,
0: no. I, I, um, I,
1: I, about <laughs> the creaming of the pants and whatnot. The creaming of pants um, and uh, <laughs>
0: what was it? What in the tush?
1: tush? <laughs> and and uh, Barbara Bush. Bush, Bush Barbara in the Bush in the tush. Right, yeah. um, Bush in the tush. No, I, I have a theory that I've just come up with, and it's probably very half-baked, but I'm wondering if some of this uh, addiction to um, pushing artists into having the, the, the right political uh, ideology and narratives, I, th- I wonder if it comes a little bit from people feeling overwhelmed by the content options for them to consume. And I wonder mm. if it's a bit of a, huh. like, if I have so much in front of me, I can't listen to it all. I'm going to sieve out people who don't agree with me politically because politics is everything now and it matters so much that I will use this as, as one of my determining factors for what I should <laughs> even filter. bother. Yeah, my filter. Like maybe that's, it's like I I hadn't like thought about a, that, but that's like,
2: genius. That's genius, yeah, yeah. Filter. I hadn't thought about that, that's really smart.
1: I, I have no idea if it's if it there's any merit in it, but I wonder if it's like a coping mechanism. That's wow. that's fucking
2: brilliant. <laughs> at, yeah.
0: at, at a minimum, it definitely allows people to to let go of artists that otherwise they might cling to more strongly because they know that there are there's going to be others to fill in the void, mm-hmm. but maybe but maybe and there also, is something even more subtle that there's just subconsciously they're applying this filter because there's too much I'm fucking suffocated,
1: and the gatekeepers are no longer there to tell them what's good and what's not, right, and That's, you're just inundated, and- so you don't
0: have anything but half baked morality to. Mm. Call out your art. And to feel hmm. good about
1: the art that you consume, right? Like, you want to feel, you want, you, part of what you're doing is you're, you're creating, you're, you're, I guess the way that you're, you're filtering your algorithms and your Instagram feeds is like, I want to feel good about myself. And so I'm just choosing what it is. And so I think that's, that's becoming the filter by which people want to consume anything.
0: I love it.
2: There might also be a type that would seek out artists that have been, uh, you know anathematized because they they want the transgressive experience, yeah
1: mm. <laughs> so you're saying it's having the opposite
2: effect? I'm saying is it depends on the person, right mm. and there might be like an artist that you that nobody kind of knew i mean i this is not an artist, but there was a there's a there's a Philadelphia Philly like one of the greatest pitchers for the Phillies ever named Steve Carlton Steve Carlton uh at some point early in his career with the Phillies. Had a very bad experience during spring training with an inquirer journalist who reported on his like carousing after the game or something, and he decided from that point on he was not going to speak to anybody from the press. And there was a famous joke in the in, at the time in baseball, which was like, you know, who who speaks like? There's only one person who speaks less words, less English than Fernando Valenzuela. It's Steve Carlton. Anyway, blah blah blah. <laughs> anyway, so Steve Carlton who is totally silent for all these years, superb, stellar, great pitcher, gets in the Hall of Fame. Finally, like some Inquirer reporter catches up with him at his ranch in Colorado. And guess what? It turns out that that Steve Carlton is like a crazy anti-government, anti-Semite lunatic. (laughs) And it's like they're doing this whole thing where it's like, and you you I remember as a kid, I was reading this piece. And I was like, oh, that's what happened to Steve Garland. Maybe he should have just kept his mouth shut. Like <laughs> it's like so, so sometimes you find out like an artist that you really like has these views that you can't imagine. Like, why does he think that? You know, I don't know. Mm.
0: I I but when you said that they seek out transgression, uh they seek out the experience of transgression, I wonder. Now, just because now we're completely theorizing un, unprovable psychology, the <laughs> idea that <laughs> because we live in such a libertine society when it comes to cultural uh, mores, I mean, we're in a post South Park society, seemingly like everything is allowed. At this point, you need to make, to anathematize things in order to have something to transgress again, to like, you're actually creating the transgressive. You're oh. making the mathemat in order that there is a transgression later on. Can't have the sacred
2: it, without the profane.
0: Exactly. So yeah, yeah. okay, we have hmm. some some unprovable theories.
1: Does it exp- do, do any of our unprovable theories explain the desire to excise uh, artists of the past? Though, L- like, what what is what is deemed acceptable now that is like, it's not like you're going to have Ezra Pound poetry on your Instagram feed. So you don't have to filter that out so much. But if somebody wants to problematize Ezra Pound now and say, let us, let us excise him from the canon, like is where does the instinct come from?
2: First of all, stop excising people. (laughs) (laughs) Second of all, what are we trying to accomplish? Like with all of this? I mean, like let's get it back to yay just for a second. Okay. The argument And I kind of understand it is that it's very important to have like everybody say, this is not okay for you to say this if you're a celebrity on a big platform. And that when we do that, we are strengthening a norm against toxic and dangerous anti-Semitic ideas. And there is some sort of value in that. But then you have to look at it from this perspective, which is that in the era that we're in, when you can, when people can find like, other like-minded people all over the world that agree with them, it's not the way that it was. It's not like, you know, it used to be like, it, we used to have a, a Walter Cronkite who, you know, sifted through and filtered out all of the stuff for the news and millions of Americans would watch him. And that was a very powerful position. And it used to really matter, like if you were a comedian and you didn't get on Johnny Carson, then you will not have a career. And like, you, you know, that was, that's the stakes were very high for that sort of thing. So those gatekeepers, but we don't have that anymore. People will find what they're going to find. So that's the first point. It doesn't mean that there can't be norms that we have places that we kind of create de facto that this is a respectable place or something like that. But like, where does Kanye saying these crazy things? He's saying them on podcasts, which... You know, I love podcasts. I have one. <laughs> you guys have one. I mean, it's like we love podcasts, but it's not like it's not you know, it's not Conk like he's I saying joke? it on the, like, you know, it's not saying it on CNN, Right. And the other point is that like well, he was saying it on Fox News, apparently. Oh, I guess he was saying it on Fox News, but they edited it out, right? Um hmm. and forgot to that's mention That's
1: actually interesting that they edited I mean I mean
0: I mean that's I mean that's very incriminating for Fox News, if any. I don't know. I
2: disagree. You with think? That. You but I'm yeah, I'd no, stand no, no, out like you, a sore thumb on this one. No, so I I'd love to hear. Well, it's just like if you I I've never been in the television business, but I know and I know a lot a little bit about it and it's like if you do a 2-hour interview, you're going to edit it down a ton. And yeah, exactly. So I mean I I mean
0: for whatever my experience in news production <laughs> There's not, that's not, that was not, con- that's not editing down content. That's the sort of stuff that at a minimum you send out on a website because. Hold on, but isn't that like if
2: you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't? Like if you, if you decide to know. highlight that. You, right. Well, you can you so highlight it, charged then you're like,
1: for, for espousing this. I mean, yeah. you know, there's also a problem.
0: Tuck, Tuck, no, but Tucker Carlson was also, you're not espousing it. You're exposing it. The the Tucker Carlson,
1: but you're quote unquote s- platforming it.
0: No, but 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 now you're but now you're. First of all, the Tucker Carlson segment was framed as uh, a he's rehabilitation. He, he, he's normal. Of, of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, normal.
2: Stop saying he's crazy. And then you just wants. He just cares about right, unborn babies. Right. Exactly. Oh. Is
0: is is one of us basically? I see. Nothing is nothing to see here. So there was and, something
2: deceptive about. Yeah, and then you were painting him it down as a normal guy when, he, in fact, he was saying all this other crazy
0: anti-Semitic. Yeah, I think that's not. I, I think see. there's.
2: But My point is, that if you want to strengthen the norm, it's like maybe the best way to treat it is like, well, I wasn't turning to Kanye for like what is acceptable, like for media theory. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm not. So the, on the one hand, it's like, if you decide to make it a big deal, then, you know, you're opening up another segment of the audience that doesn't respect any gatekeepers or any kind of ground. So I don't know. It's like, it, what is the end goal? The end goal is to kind of enforce these norms to say these kinds of things are, you, you shouldn't be able to say that. But then it gets into like problems when we're, we we do not have, I mean, we do, I think we do have a consensus in our society about Basic, like some of this really extreme anti-Semitism. Like it's not okay to say that all the Jews like run the media and the banks and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like we don't have a consensus oh, right cloud. now on whether you can say that a man can't get pregnant. And that used to, mm-hmm. until Elon Musk took over Twitter, that would get you kicked off of Twitter. And it was like you were trying to enforce the norm before you had buy-in from everybody else.
0: Yeah, I love that point that you that you do make uh, several times on your on your pod. Uh, the norms are strongest when they take their like they you actually let them go through the intellectual struggle of of right. of settling culturally before you try to force people to not think otherwise and And sometimes it takes a while, but then when once the norm sticks, it it's much stickier.
2: It's resilient. Yeah. Well, I guess it's kind of the
1: definition of a norm, right? It has to it has to reach some sort of tipping point consensus to become a norm, right? And what I
2: think was happening, and I, hopefully it's about to be over, was that there was a sense among, you know, progressive activists and big tech that they could they could short circuit the pro the organic process of persuading lots of people that this is mm. when you think about it this way and just impose it by saying, we, we're we not going to be able to, right. we're going to throttle this kind of speech. We're not going to let you say this kind of thing. We're going to treat this as if this is hate speech. And I think that that's really rubbing a lot of Americans the wrong way. And I think it's one of the factors that's probably going to lead to a, a red tsunami in the midterms next week. Mm. Yeah, that's uh Yep, that's probably coming. Um, <laughs> it is. And it's, why, it's like, Like you know what I mean? And I say this as somebody who is horrified by January 6th, would never vote for Donald Trump, agrees with the Democrats when it says, when they, when they make the point that it's like, listen, you can't have a president who basically creates a campaign to delegitimize the election that he lost. I agree with all that. I'm in agreement. But what I can't, Take is when I when the same party then goes ahead and does things that also undermine democracy, like agitating to censor the political speech of their adversaries, which they have been doing or politicizing the FBI, which they did and. Like that's where I get like it's like I'm like, I don't know what that's why I'm a neither Trumper as opposed to a never Trumper.
0: Yeah, I like I like that phrase of yours. I don't know what to do with moments like these when you I I, I felt very felt it very acutely during 2020 when every second your attention has to jump between something that Trump is doing than something that's happening on the progressive obsession with making excuses for riots and looting. Uh, So much in the spectrum between stupid and evil that was taking place and is still taking place, or at least stupid and wrong, that that is also clashing, that you feel like you're constantly in the center of two giant uh, walls of of water. I'm so sorry of my mosaic influences. I'm just imagining those, those Charlton Heston standing between those two walls of water. But... You don't always need to pay attention to both sides at the same time or in the same on the same matters. So, for instance, when we we're talking about elections, each election has a different risk factor. And sometimes the uh, around the country because it's so big but also so overly nationalized by by its news consumption, you'd have states that vote on problems that are happening in another state while then giving a pass to corrupt people on their side. And this way, in New York, a lot of the bad policies that, in my opinion, bad policies that Hochul is going to get a pass for are because of the fears and concerns around January 6th and the repealing of Roe. And I don't know, I find it very hard to believe that abortion rights in New York state are currently at risk or that electing a Democrat as the governor of New York will have any effect on democracy writ large. On the other hand, you have a real election deniers being positioned and probably winning um, positions of power where they could potentially overturn an election in 2024, regardless of the vote, or even completely obfuscate the, the vote in real time, being pushed forward because of panic about cancel culture, for instance, or critical race theory and things that
2: don't really have a grip in their state. Mm, Push back a little bit on that. Go ahead. Um, One reason why we are at risk of election deniers uh, winning elections is because the Democratic Party spends millions of dollars to support them in primaries against non-election deniers.
0: Yeah, that's totally reprehensible and I'm not exonerating these
2: assholes. So that's one. Um, But that's two, not the only factor. No, I understand it's not the only thing, but two, like uh, there is a kind of march to the institutions by the super woke and people who have dumb ideas and like kind of, I would say anti-racism uh, as explained by Ibram X. Candy and many people who kind of are, you know, in his orbit, I think that's an, I think that's an anti-democratic idea. I think it's like fundamentally undermines like the basic compact of our country in uh, that the Democrats are claiming to supreme. anti-racism is focused on having equal outcomes, not just an equal process. And the proposed like policy fix of is that you would, you would audit every government program to make sure that it's, sufficiently anti-racist in the Ibrahim X. Kendi view of it to which I sort of say like um, that sounds terrible. Like it sounds like you're rigging the entire, you know, like, I don't know. Like I, and I don't think there's any kind of like, so I think that that's like a, that's a legitimate concern, even if it's not necessarily true that um, the schools are as like bad as some people say, but like I think there has been some stuff that's been done in terms of the school curriculum and, The attitude we saw in Virginia last year in the governor's race that like McAuliffe was saying that parents shouldn't have a say in what, you know, the curriculum is. And there were lots of people who were trying to defend that proposition like Nicole Hannah-Jones on television. I just think like that's wrong. I I think
0: that might have been one of the most amazing moments of political, I don't know if malfeasance or miscalculation, but... At a time where even liberals are starting to hate on teachers' union, McAuliffe shares a stage with a teacher union head and, and goes on to completely endorse their right to control, not just curriculum, but also school closures. That was phenomenal. It's horrible. And like, but that was just being a really dumb politician. No, no, that, hold
2: on. But there's a reason why they were dumb. There's a reason why they're dumb, okay? The reason that the Democrats are so politically inept right now is because they have a closed loop, because they came into after January sixth saying that there was no legitimacy of the Democratic par- of the Republican Party, and that their political opposition were a bunch of fascists, and we don't have to listen to a word they have to say. And I'm sorry, but like that means that you do not have the ability anymore to get the advanced warning and the signal that says, wait a second, what you're saying right now is really unpopular with voters, because you only are filtering everything out except for like the people like who are your Echo chamber, your Hosanna chorus.
1: And that's problem It's the and same that's thing a in the cultural for them. sphere. It's not yeah. just the political sphere, right? Like yeah, it's
2: the cultural sphere and like this, this dumb idea among, listen, I don't want to be the old man picking it because you guys are great. <laughs> but there's something about the Gen Z millennials where they believe that if they encounter views that uh, kind of go against some of their core beliefs that it's somehow harmful to them mm. and they don't engage it. And that they shouldn't be asked to endure exposure to that kind of stuff. And I would really like it if all of these people who really believe that would just be disabused of this notion because it's just not true. And you can't live in a free society and think that way. And you cannot agitate and expect for various nodes of authority to protect you from these kinds of things. And that's why I'm so wary of it, because even though like, I'm Jewish and I, I can't stand anti-Semitism... But I almost think there's like a bigger fight that we have right now, which is to, you know, just stop being such wusses. Like we have to have a society where it's okay for people to occasionally be offended and it's not the end of the world. And people are using this complaint about their mental health or it's like words or violence or whatever it is as a, you know, as a trans non-binary person. I'm here to tell you that, you know, this is so offensive and da, 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 da. And it's basically a way to censor anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. And I just think that more and more, I mean, you can think that, but I want the people in authority to have some backbone to say no. Whether you're a school principal or like a, you know, politician or like the president of a university, just say no. To quote Nancy Reagan. (laughs) I am... (laughs)
0: fully in endorsement of everything you said. But that's also why it's terrifying when you get Kerry Lakes in position of power because I, do I think that a, a, a Trump or Trump-adjacent uh, government is going to be more inclusive of offensive speech? No, it's just going to change the direction of offense. This is a person, this is a a, a, a movement whose psychology is that anything that offends the person of Donald Trump needs to be canceled. Whether it's a Republican or Yeah, but I don't know. Well, first civil-
2: of all, I'm not so sure that they're going to do that. And if they do, I will be... I mean- the I mean, first, but I don't. I don't. You think I don't think Republicans are doing that. I, don't think I mean, saying I, said
0: that. That, I, I I'm I'm the people, person who said that on who says that a lot about people like you know um um ISIS and like you know take them at their word when they're talking about um uh their their uh, Islam Islam uh, Islamo supremacist worldview. I also t- take people at their word when they say that the election was fake, that Biden didn't win, and implicitly that. Trump running again, there is no legitimate way
2: in which he could lose, meaning no oh, yeah. matter well, what okay, the vote but says, that's a separate, hold on, wait a second, hold on. To that's me, that's a, sep- that's a separate issue, my fan. That's a separate issue. Mm. I don't think you're going to have Republicans saying you can't say anything that offends Trump or denigrates Trump, because we have, we, we, we can go back to the four years of his presidency when uh, everything that was on cable news was denigrating Trump. And there was nothing, he did not do anything. He mused at times about like changing the libel laws and they were very bad ideas. And I didn't like that. He said mean things about my tribe of journalists. Okay, fine. That's not good either. But I know enough and I've been around long enough to know that there was far more stuff that the Justice Department did under Barack Obama that was much more of a threat in terms of investigating journalists in terms of classified leaks than what Trump, Trump didn't like, what did Trump do on this regard? I mean, like, I guess he but insulted also Jim Acosta incom- no, at but a press also conference blame, or something.
0: You can also blame incompetence to his inability. Yeah, it, it, but it I think and I don't think that's there a lot
2: the of danger. danger. I'm agreeing with you that Trump's a danger, but that's not the danger. No, the danger, I It's a different danger from the left. The left's danger is that they're busybodies who take over bureaucracies and they're going to use that power as they march through the institutions to just I mean, kind of try marches- to impose their agenda. By Their censoring march is complete. speech that they don't like.
0: Their march is complete. I think now well, we are primed to, don't you think so? I mean, they've, they've marched through. The I want to get to back theirs. to
2: Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake offends me. She's an okay. election denier. I would agree with that, okay? However, I'm willing to live with her winning in a red wave, if only because it will send, hopefully, an important signal to the Democrats to like end hmm. this stuff that's that that is creating this response. Like, if we could get a moment where the Democrats are like, okay, let's, let's really examine, like, why did we lose and flame out so badly? That will be a good thing for the country. And that's why I think, that's why I think like, Democratic republics are a better system of government than all the alternatives because it right, does have right, this right. natural feedback system. Of self-correction. And right. And that's why, like, when they say vote like democracy is on the line for the same shit – For like more inflation and like rising crime rates and gaslighting and not being honest with us about how president is probably like not mentally all there. Like you want me to to, to endorse more of that, more Department of Homeland (laughs) Security censoring the Internet, more of that? Fuck you. I'm not going to vote for that. Yeah, no. Sorry, rant over.
0: I know. I'm totally down with the idea that you want to send a signal, and I totally down with the idea that both parties, by the way, need to get slapped in the face. But but do you really think that's going to happen? Did Republicans have Mm. go through any soul searching about Trump after? Having several states where no, down no, the ballot, right. Republicans were winning, but Trump wasn't elected, but Biden was mm. uh, elected president. Did they go at any, maybe we should distance ourselves from Trump, maybe for like a day. There was a day where they considered it.
2: No, no, you know, listen, you make a very good point. However, the difference is there is no demagogue at the top of the Democratic Party right now. That's one of the good things about having, you know, Sleepy Joe... At the top of the ticket, so to speak. Which so you is think that,
0: it's more easily fixable?
2: Well, I do think it's easily fixable. I mean, fixable the knives are already coming out for Biden, so it's- As well it, they should. As well they should, I agree. Um, I mean, like, can we just say, I mean, like, I know, Vanessa, you know what, we haven't heard mm-hmm. from you. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> sure. Is President Biden, like, mentally competent right now? Can he, should he be the president?
1: So, uh, you're at, talking to someone who does not follow the news. I'm not a okay. news junkie. Um I am a person. If it filters through to me, it's because somebody shared it or something really big has happened, or one so of your my, flatmates
0: or, flatmates ranted about it.
1: Correct. Next such as you. Adam or or Emma or my husband. So, uh, what's filtering through to me is not. I, I don't feel like he's doing a great job, but I also can't point any fingers to what is doing what he's doing terribly. I just have a sense of it's like he's just ambling along. Um, and I know that he's inflation a is mistakes. a problem. I'm
2: just saying he's making a lot of mistakes that are you can't just explain as like oh well Joe's always been like that.
1: Mm-hmm. He and was he was a competent
2: are? politician
0: in the past, a competent politician with plenty of gaffes and not particularly profound, but at least mm-hmm. politically savvy enough to get along. To I mean, if you watched the his <laughs> "Democracy in Peril" Part Two speech, uh, the other it's just uh, it's not it's
2: not. It's not great,
1: and the the mistakes are domestic, international, on all. He's fronts. like
2: sh- he's like shaking hands with like the air. Like I'm just saying, mm-hmm. there's something like he's, mm. he's not all there. He needs naps.
1: Mm. I'm not. I mean, he's not. I, a, he's not a young guy. He's a very very old. One of our yeah, oldest. Yeah, he's going to be ever. eighty. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right. And the question is not should he be euthanized, but should he be president? <laughs>
2: right. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, if you exactly. Give him a podcast. I think he could handle that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I mean, Vanessa, but- I have to ask. Like, so, 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 is your your bag is like your your cultural
1: uh, our architecture urbanism is my oh, okay. it's my bag. Yes, is that your bag? And so right. I've been pull. Po- I am a a lefty, but of not of a political persuasion. So insofar as I just culturally have been raised on the left, uh, and this podcast is uh, a. Dom and I having conversations with people that I never would have.
2: <laughs> That's so cool. And
1: so it's part me learning and part me uh, questioning things that I have sometimes taken for granted.
0: And also pushing against my suppositions as somebody who's, t- some would argue, too immersed in some of this bullshit. Mm.
2: Mm. Have you, uh, well, I guess the question before, Have you, have you read uh, Caro's masterful biography of Robert The Both's? Power Broker? Yes. Yeah.
1: It is on my to read. Everyone talks about it to me constantly. It is dope
2: as hell. It is so good. You got to read it. I will. And then then get into his Lyndon Johnson stuff, which is also great. But as an architect, as somebody who's interested in urban planning, it it unlocks so many things. It's like a great biography, but it's more than a biography. It's like a history of like New York City and like why it's laid out the way it is. It's great.
1: Yes. And I just bought tickets to Straight Line Crazy. So I'm going to see that tomorrow. What is that? That's the new play of about Robert Moses, oh. starring Rafe Fines.
2: Oh, okay. I gotta. If I'm in New York, I love New York. I gotta go yes. to New York, and I gotta. That's it might something be sold out, like but,
1: but maybe you know somebody.
2: <laughs> no, I mean I'm in DC, so, but I'll wait. Me, i wait for it. That's really cool. Yeah. Anyway, great book, Power Broker.
1: I've I've heard it recommended many times. Robert Caro is an uh, exceptional biographer, uh, so
2: yeah. The, oh, yeah, this it's great. I
0: mean, I, I did you read the Robert Caro? Um, it's not exactly an autobiography, but kind of like his um, journal about about writing about the. Craft. No,
2: I have not read that yet, and I actually I should read that because I'm. I've read everything else by Caro, and uh, I love
0: his. I didn't read the the Johnson yet.
2: Oh my god, the Johnson's really good too. It's yeah. like you when you what you, you get out of the but Johnson one. Well, what you get out of the Johnson one, it's like a history. There's a whole. You could, it's also a history of the Senate. It's the history of like Washington in the middle of the century. It's really good. Yeah. I. Uh, okay.
1: Should we close with our blind spots question?
0: No, before the blind spot question, I just want to give you a chance to. Uh, <laughs> um, what's a new conservative? Are you one? And why are you trying to take over the world? Uh,
1: neoconservative or new conservative?
0: Neoconservative. neoconservative. Ne- That's neoconservative. my Israeli accent.
2: Um, well, the definition of neoconservative from Irving Kristol was somebody who was on the left who migrated to the right, which is fairly general. Um, but I think that's pretty, I mean, listen, it's, it's the, the meaning of the word has been twisted beyond recognition. Right, right. Uh, I call myself a neoconservative more now out of defiance. Um, yeah, yeah that's why I do it. I do,
0: I, do I, I identify one just because it really gets people annoyed. Well, I, and not, I love it.
2: not as a troll, but just because like, I just think mm-hmm. it's like <laughs> if people try to demonize the neocons in unfair ways. And I'm like, all right, you know what? Like, uh.
0: Well I call I wear an it proudly.
2: Imp- like, and that was originally the thing, because like neocon was a slur from Michael Harrington and the socialists yeah. against their old friends who who went to the right. And Crystal was like, you know what? Fine. Then call us. It's like the way that um gay people started calling themselves right. queer. So it's like neocon became like was originally like that. And then they was like, hey, you're damn right I'm a neocon. And then then there's a period where there's like they were saying, like, oh my God, like, you know, neocons are just these like, you know people it's like a synonym for zionist trying to take over the world and that's not true and
0: i, I uh, actually the the way i use it it's also not as a troll but i i sometimes i i uh, call myself um even more defiantly i guess as a, an american imperialist and that's just because i'm there's an oh, that is a troll i like that, that it's not it's not completely a troll because i i mean because we were obviously talking about not in real imperialism, we're talking about some of the cultural influences and just growing up and being surrounded by people who, uh, especially professionally, who sort of take for granted that American influence uh, uh, around the world is by definition corrosive, no matter what, it kind of bugs me as a non-American.
2: So I guess I would say, I call myself a neocon just because I'm old enough and I like live through the George W. Bush, like, you know, travails, and everything like that. And that the word had... You know, I, I don't know. I just sort of stuck with the neocons. And I write, you know, and now I write a column for the New York Sun. I am a contributing editor of Commentary Magazine, which is a flagship neoconservative publication. Although what I've been writing recently for Commentary is not, wouldn't fit neatly into the neocon. And I certainly am like in a very different place right now politically than like, say, Bill Kristol or some of the other neocons who became never Trump. Because I'm really concerned about abuses at the FBI, and I have to say, one of my things is that becomes somewhat red pilled on some of this issues having to do with domestic surveillance.
0: That's why I brought it up. Yeah, yeah, which I find fascinating. So, can you talk a little bit about this?
2: Yeah, no. So I'm like very much like you know, I have. I'm very proud of this piece. I think it's really good. It'll be out in the next. It's very long. It's be a big long essay in the next Commentary magazine, which everybody should read. But it's a look at the FBI from a kind of historical perspective. And one of the things that I get into in this essay is like how, you know, like, is it okay that like after 9-11, the FBI basically started infiltrating Muslim American communities and, you know, they, and, and preventing terror attacks by sending informants to try to like get people who might be like kind of these loner loser types, you know, Mm to agree to some sort of plan. And then we find out like one of these people Mm -hmm. have been working for the government the whole time. I'm uncomfortable with it. I'm uncomfortable with it in perpetuity. And like now that technique is being used against so-called domestic extremists. And I don't like, I'm against racism. I'm against the domestic extremists. I'm against, you know, white power militias. All that stuff sucks. And I want the feds, I mean, I think so far there's a danger, but I think there's a problem when we look at like the case against of the kidnapping plot against um Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan most of the people involved in the plot were working for the FBI in some capacity we're, we're, yeah so like did you prevent terrorism or did you just sort of entice you did you instigate it like i i made a joke but if i was uh, what's her name Tudor davis i think it was who was the person running against uh Gretchen Whitmer but i would say like you know Gretchen Whitmer do you have a plan for protecting the governor's mansion from various plots by the FBI and like the suckers that they enticed. It's like, it's like, so I'm not, does that make me, I, I'll call myself a neocon, but I'm very skeptical. I'm so I'm more, much more of a skeptic of some of these kinds of state powers. I'm certainly no longer the, I, I, I think that there was a blind spot and that everybody thought America could do anything in terms of nation building. I think it's much harder. There's to be much more of a serious commitment to it. Um, but I still believe America should be a great power. And I think American hegemony is largely a good thing for the world, as opposed to uh, any of the realistic alternatives to it. Yeah. So I mean, exactly. I, I'm kind of a neocon, but I think we've all
0: we've all changed. Anytime that uh, an ideology leads you to be so gun ho that you can't see where your own side is violating some kind of civil rights or or human rights, and I think there uh, during the Bush years there was a lot of shit. And yeah. I mean, there is something weird when, when you see people like Tucker Carlson now suddenly discovering the the abuses of power by the DOJ because it's it's afflicting his side. But on the other hand, you know, it's good. Like actually skepticism about state power is not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. However you ended up in this mm. camp. Um, although although there is a way like you can cross a
2: line. Well, and do- I mean, I, that's the other thing is that there's an internal contradiction mm. uh, in a kind of Bushier conservatism, because Bush himself was skeptical of, you know, large domestic government programs. I mean, this goes back to F.A. Hayek and others who would say, you know, like, listen, when you create a bureaucracy, it will never get rid of itself. It'll never solve the problem you're intending to solve. And you should be very wary of that. And that's why, like, traditionally, Republicans and conservatives like mm. like free market solutions and things like that. Well, like, what is a nation-building project in the Middle East other than an enormous government program? So you don't think that the the your your
0: and the carve out for the security state domain exactly like so those are
2: government <laughs> programs and they wouldn't they be subjected to the same laws, you know, the same Hayekian principles, if you will, as these other programs that you don't like. And I kind of I should say I was aware of this. I wrote a I I wrote a piece for Reason magazine, and you know during the Bush years called the '914 presidency where I identified some of these things. If anything, I think I've become like more like aware of it. I was always a little bit of an oddball in that respect.
0: No, that's why, that's why I didn't even pick on you on this. I was uh, Tucker Carlson. On the other hand, I, I distinctly remember. Well, Tucker
2: was used to be a major league neocon. He used to write for the weekly standard.
0: Okay. Vanessa, shall we blind spots?
1: Okay. Uh, so this is the question we like to ask all of our guests. It's our closer. Uh, what are the biggest blind spots on the left? And what are the biggest blind spots on the
2: right? Mm. Oh, wow, well, those are good. You got to give me a second here. I got to think about that because that's a that's a sure. smart question.
1: <laughs> Mull it over.
2: <laughs> all right. Um, it depends. First of all, I don't know what part of the right we're talking about, but if let's say the let's say they're, they're, there's kind of an ascendant nat con nationalist right. Okay, so one of the that's the post liberal. Somewhat post-liberal. So here's where I think there's a real blind spot. The idea that we should use political power to accomplish our ends in these other areas, the blind spot is uh, what happens if you lose political power? Won't you be giving a permission structure for your adversaries to do the same damn thing? To which I think the the, the NATCONs would say, hey, they're already doing it, so we have no choice. We have to do it. To which I'm saying, wouldn't it be better if you could devise a system and get buy-in from everybody where nobody did it? Wouldn't that be good? So that's a blind spot on the right right now that I'm worrying about. Okay, let me think of like the real blind spot on the left. All right, let me—I got to come up with a good one here. So many. Okay, here's a, here's a here's a basic one that I think is a blind spot on the left. Nobody outside of a very cloistered online community and a couple faculty lounges thinks there are more than two genders. Just give up on it. You're not going to get people to say to stop using the word mother, okay? And you're not going to... Birthing person, stop it, okay? It's been around forever. It is fake history. It's fake anthropology to say, oh, there've been other cultures where there have been third genders and fourth genders. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. And I'm just telling you, it's. I have nothing against. If you can be whatever you want to be, I respect adult uh, choices of adults to be whatever they want to be. I'm a libertarian in that way. I believe in maximal social freedom. Where I love America because we're a big country. You can walk all kinds of community. But the idea that you want to try police language in a way to somehow break the gender binary is ridiculous. And you will lose, and you're, if you think that that's progress, it's just you're Don Quixote. You are, you are waving at windmills.
1: It's funny. I think the policing is the problem, but I, I actually think that there is a bit of an inevitable march towards including things like they and non-binary. I think that will happen eventually, but in, in, in many ways, despite the way people are acting right now.
2: <laughs> okay, you know what? I could be wrong. Maybe that's my <laughs> blind spot. <laughs> <laughs> it's my blind spot. Is that I just, you know, you know what I mean? But like right. this, I, when I see the people say, well, you know, there are tomboys and then there's really girly girls, I'm like, yeah, but they're d- d- anyway.
0: <laughs> I'll just, I, I, I feel like there is something about the way that this conversation is being policed that my guess is that it ends up increasing anxiety on people who are, that mm-hmm. have some identity oh. confusion or uncertainty. And letting people explore the mysteries of their own identity, I think that's great on an individual level. But when you're trying to solve it by creating a gazillion buckets that they need to choose from, I think that's not, I, I'm not convinced that that's the healthiest way. But I don't know.
1: Mm. I think that's why queer has stuck around. Because it's, it's so flexible.
0: Queer is wonderful. Also, the idea of queer is just great because you're saying, I'm flouting whatever you're trying to shove me into.
2: I have one of my, my best friend is gay. Jamie mm-hmm. Kerchick, you should have yeah. on the show. We're He's trying really to, sweet. we He's reached out. Okay, well, I'll tell him. <laughs> okay, you guys <laughs> do a good show. I'm glad <laughs> you guys are doing this. But, like, if I know people that like you say, I'm queer, mm-hmm. but they F women, I'm like, okay, like, so how are you queer? Because I didn't want to identify that way. I'm like, well, then just. Okay, yeah, but that's not the, the
0: queer that I'm talking about. Sure, there is some element where you find those totally straight guys and you ask them, did you ever fuck? Uh, uh, something that isn't a girl, and they'll say no, but they'll still identify as square and like, okay, now you're just playing into a fashion. And yes, that exists. There are people who are exploiting this permissiveness and 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 think that if they don't tag themselves as something that is outside the binary, then they are boring. So they have to be something special. They have to, to try to, to, mm. to go outside of the uh, old norms. But queerness is still a great category because it allows you to exist mm-hmm. in the mess of sexuality without depending on a specific, narrow, overly defined category. It allows you to be in a muck of figure it out for yourself, and find your own individual experience, and that's great. Be as weird as you want to be. And let yourself be fucked by whoever you want to be. That's great. My problem is with the over-categorization and shoving people into increasingly diminishing but still highly specific boxes. And then pretending that that's somehow fluid and progress.
2: You're erasing gays and lesbians.
0: I'm I'm erasing gays and lesbians?
2: Yeah, you are. Because there's a specific... Gays have a gay culture. There's a gay history. There's lesbians have a lesbian culture, lesbian history, and the idea that now everything's just queer. It's, it's not that like everything uh, is queer.
0: Is that the existence of queer is fine, not instead of gay and lesbian culture?
2: You know what? But it's not my fight because I'm not I'm not gay. So I mean, I I don't want to like it's not it's not like my thing. It's like when people get like overly upset about anti semitism and they're not Jewish.
0: Yeah, that's fair enough. I, uh, the only, I think the only passion that I, I, I bring into this is because I was um, involved in the, from the secular perspective because I was trying to create a, a liberal space for expression in, in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the Pride Parade was actually a meaningful um, statement. It was not just a festival. It was actually a statement about you're not going to banish gay people from the city. You're, you're going to let them march. You're going to let them be themselves. Growing up around that community, the idea of queerness was not in any way erasory. It was about letting people find their own individual expression within the messy realm of sexuality and not letting it be constrained by the religious authorities that ran the city.
2: You're just pinkwashing...
0: I'm pinkwashing the occupation.
2: You're pinkwashing like the, like, you know... Like one day, they'll, we'll have a free Palestine <laughs> where gay people will be hung <laughs> and executed for their sexual. That purposes. is exactly what and I'm doing. I will not accept this pink washing <laughs> until Palestine is liberated from the. Uh,
0: I'll consider that closing the circle.
2: There you go. <laughs> Eli, that was, this this was, was a lot awesome. of fun, everybody. Thank you so
0: much. This was great. Well, I love Thank what you Eli. guys are
2: doing. I think it's really so necessary right now. I just wanted to say that. that um. We're gonna get past this moment of uh, anxiety and intolerance, and it's gonna be because of the work of of young people like you guys. So thank you. I, I appreciate well, the you. optimism. And
1: think and people should, yes, that is very optimistic. And people should absolutely listen to the reeducation as well because you're also doing this work. Thank
0: you. Just so you and like is the show. great. I love it.
1: Yes, we do. We've been listening to it in preparation, so we've been we've been enjoying it. Well, the it. new one, the, the monologues. New, one, thank you. The, I, I love the monologues. Like <laughs> very good. And I can't imagine preparing those for every episode.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work, which is why uh, we're going to start monetizing because I got to get some yeah. cash yeah, for yeah. It. Um Anyway, but... Yeah, it's um, a worthy product. I will say this. The latest one uh, called Red Wave Over Israel is a good monologue. It's all about Mayor Kahana. And, uh, and the... Uh, Judeo fascism.
0: Go listen to the reeducation before it costs you eight dollars for the reeducation check mark.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, <laughs> guys. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you. This last time we chatted, you and Adam were essentially on the same page that you were predicting a tsunami, a kind of backlash against the Democrats, kind of focus on policing language and, and all of this stuff and that there was going to be a backlash against them in the midterms, um, pretty wide scale.
0: Inflation and crime. And, and Sorry? And inflation the, the, and crime. Their lack
1: of focus on those two um, issues, right? Yeah. But it didn't really pan out so much as a tsunami. So I want to no, give you not. both a chance to reflect on that. And what did
2: I say? I, I don't remember. <laughs> but I hope I didn't say anything too embarrassing.
1: <laughs> Basically, you were just like you—you you were pretty certain that it was gonna be a tsunami because of the—the we—we were both right.
0: we were both very like okay, like they're they're getting what's right, coming exactly. And apparently, Republicans also got what was coming to them. So, what are your thoughts?
2: I'm just gonna make a joke. <laughs> Go for it. I don't recognize my country uh-huh, anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> we're, we're just turning into like Orwell's. we you know, well, 1984. <laughs> People love their chains. They lo- <laughs> love their oppression. I'm sorry. I'm fighting this horrible cult oh. that I got from my daughter.
1: It gives you gravitas. Um,
2: so that's why my voice is so raspy. Also, it's not the, it's not the beleaguered. Give you the no, malaise. it's not the midterms. I just... <laughs> no, it's my... I love my daughter, but she got the whole household sick. Um... Okay, um, but like you know, I'm just, I obviously don't think that. First of all, um, I mean, how many times before a major national election do we have to relearn the lesson that all of the polls are wrong? <laughs> yeah. um, so that's a. We really need to
0: get over that point where poll start pollsters and poll readers start believing themselves. Like like around like a few months before the election, they're like really starting to take it seriously, and you, you just right. you just get swept up.
2: You do. And you, every year we find out that it it was, I mean, there were some polls that were correct. New York Times, Siena college was totally right. It looks like, but there were a lot of, there were a lot of like, there were a lot of pollsters who had gotten the last one, right. That were then like, I don't know. They were, and they were feeding us like on certain races. They were totally wrong. And I'm not a super political junkie, but there are people who said that Tiffany Smiley in Washington state was really competitive. That didn't turn out to be true. Um, I'm not sure that there's a single explanation. I will say a couple points. One, I'm actually sort of happy that electorally speaking, it looks like a targeted strike against election-denying Trumpists. So it's like, you know, as somebody who is a neither-Trumper, who doesn't like Trump but doesn't like the Democrats and their resistance to Trump, There was something pretty good about this election in that respect. Um, If I was a partisan Democrat, I would worry that the important signal that would come to the Biden White House in a resounding loss Mm -hmm. has not been received and that it could, and it looks like it's already maybe leading them to um, assume that Biden was doing great and if he is, if he's nominated again for 2024, I think it ends in tears for the Democrats. Um, right, there's a
0: headline on the Hill that is Democrats faced uncertainties amid invigorating success.
2: Mm. And yeah, like, no, maybe, I mean, maybe like, that's overreading what mm. happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so that's another point, which is like, I think part of it was that there were really bad candidates. And if you, I mean, and you can look at individual examples like, you know, Brian Kemp walks away with it. He's the governor who stands up to Trump in 2020 and insists the election isn't stolen and doesn't go along with him. And yet Herschel Walker, you know, it runs to you know a, a near tie, so it's a runoff. Well, where did those six or seven or eight electoral points? I mean, what accounts for that? Well, I think it accounts for if you offer an alternative to. Democrats that doesn't embrace, you know, like lunatic conspiracy stuff about elections, you're in good shape.
0: What about Democrats in, what about New York and California? Do you think they are starting to hear the message? New York at least got, not pillory, but they and Hochul did win governorship, but but New York suffered
2: a little. It's closer than it normally is. Yeah. There are a lot of House races that were, that went to the Republicans that normally wouldn't. And I think it was because there's a backlash on that. So, I mean, we'll see. I'm, I'm incredibly unimpressed with Hochul. So it's disappointing to sort of see her win, but um, if she's savvy, she will internalize the lesson. I don't think necessarily, I don't think Gavin Newsom really is capable of that in California, but there's all kinds of signs in California starting with earlier this year with the recall of Chester Bodine, that, um, and we don't know what's going to happen in LA, but of the, you know, you know, well, Canada was recently a Republican who I guess now is an independent Democrat or something. Caruso, the businessman, defeats Karen Bass. That's a huge deal in, in Los Angeles. That's a rebuke of business as usual as well. So, I mean, maybe, we'll, maybe this is exactly the results we have. Here's the other thing. So far, even the, denying, the, the deniers have accepted their losses in the elections. That's really good. It's a really low bar, and there's a part of me that's reminded of the famous Chris Rock joke, you're supposed to take care of your kids. But we, had, we didn't have that in 2020, so what, how nice is it that everybody's kind of saying, all right, I lost the election. So that's good, too.
1: I, I had a theory before that if if it had it did go more red that it would be because folks were just more focused on inflation than abortion. Um, and I was concerned about it because, as someone who's pro-choice, i I felt like government could do very little about inflation. That would be meaningful. But it seemed like now was the time to right. to put legislative legislative pressure on abortion. Do you think that that might have driven folks to the polls? Like it seemed like the potentially they were more issued oriented this, this midterms.
2: You know, um, again, and I'm not the best, I'm, I'm not at like a mm-hmm. political junkie type, but obviously the abortion issue motivated a lot of voters. And um, in some ways, like, I don't know if it'll continue mm. to motivate them because I just think that we're now getting to this point where, there's going to be a lot of states where abortion will be, um, there'll be fewer restrictions on abortion than it was under the Roe and Casey precedents. And there's going to be states that are going to outlaw it. But it's, I don't think it, I did a a podcast on this uh, several months ago. And I came, I I basically came around to the idea that it's not, we're not going to return to the nightmarish pre-Roe world. And I have to say, for that episode, I recommend it. It's called "The Feminist Critique," play on the Mr. Betty Friedan uh, book. Um, I did a lot of research to educate myself as a, you know, straight Ashkenazi American male about the issue, and it was horrifying what women had to go through to, if they wanted to get an abortion. Under the pre-Roe regime, um, the stories, uh, I i don't think that, that you can't help but move you. I mean, one woman, and I played a clip of her, talked about how she was told when she was getting her abortion that even though she was in anguish and pain, she couldn't scream because it would, it would uh, tip off the neighbors and potentially get everybody in serious trouble with the cops. Then the abortion doctor literally, like, showed her her fetus right after it, which is psychologically Jesus. scarring, and then proceeded yeah. to molest her, and then lecture her as he was molesting her that she had to, uh, you know, be committed to chastity. What a terrible world that is! A world we should never return to. But then I analyze it and think to myself, was that was the world like that? Because solely because of the law, in part it was, but it was also the culture. And so what was the victory of second wave feminism? Because they lost on ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment in the 70s. But what they really succeeded at is changing our culture. I was born in 1972. My mother was very liberal. My mother was a feminist. But I didn't know anybody growing up that believed some of these like troglodyte ideas that I would associate with the men of that pre-Roe v. Wade world. And to me, that's, you know, we the nation owes a great debt for the cultural work done by Ms. Magazine and Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, um, you know, the, the original National Organization for Women. Even if I disagree with their positions today on like, you know, how unrestricted abortion should be or whatever. There was such a huge hurdle that was overcome that we take for granted. And in that respect, I say, I don't think we can go back to that world. Because cultural change is is much more significant in some ways than, um, you know, a Supreme right. Court. Decision.
0: So maybe we'll end on this question because yeah. um, you made me think of it. Uh, and it's, it's a topic that I love coming back to. There is a f- faction and the, I mean the size of which is, is hard to determine but people on the right who do seem to have some nostalgic outlook on the the more overtly troglodyte lifestyle. Uh, people with medieval nostalgia, people with, uh, integralist, uh, fantasies. Do you think that that type of reassertion of, I don't want to use the word, you know, patriarchal, but you know, old world, um, tendencies can really like lay roots in our politics.
2: I mean, do they really want it? I mean, listen, we all know who Phyllis Schlafly was, right? Okay. She would say that she believes she'd like to return to traditional, you know, and that housewives shouldn't feel guilty for having the most important job in the world, raising their kids. By the way, I kind of agree with that in a vacuum. But here was this incredibly impressive woman who would, who changed, uh, who prevented the ERA, was a major part of the American conservative movement beyond just on the issue of feminism, and she would begin her public appearances by saying i want to thank my husband fred for allowing me to address you today mm-hmm. which was a troll <laughs> because the reality is she was as this incredibly dynamic and talented person we would to use an expression she was wearing the pants in that family she was the one who was relevant and she did it by and she demonstrated it in her dynamism and what you find in the socially conservative ranks are not women submitting to becoming, to living in a world where they only exist as an extension of men as part of a marriage. You know, as Betty Friedan would say, they only exist as sort of instrumentalities for, you know, men or children or something. No, there are incredibly socially conservative women who are achieving great things, um, who are fully engaged in a kind of political fight. So I think it's a little bit different. I think that it's more accurate to say, or, I mean, listen, I'm sure you can find examples of it, but I think it's more accurate to say that there are, th- there are people who are on the social conservative right that if they were being, uh, if they, the, the really they, what they are criticizing is the excesses of feminism and the effects of, the you know, liberal the legacy of large. the boom. Right. But, you know, we live in a world where People like to make you know, kind of get attention for saying, for tweaking things and make, making extreme versions of the argument. So, like, yeah, you know, I want to return to that sort of thing. So, listen, Matt Walsh, you know who he is? I'm sure we all do, right? The Daily Caller guy who did What Is a Woman? Which I think was a pretty good documentary, even though I knew it was coming from a particular point of view. At the end of it, he's trolling. He, there's a scene with his wife. Says she can't open a jar of pickles and gives it to him, and he opens it. Does he want to return to the 1950s? No, you know what I'm saying. I don't think he does. But it's his way. I think it's, it's sometimes these are these are ways of of trying to antagonize one's cultural political opposition. Okay. 15 minutes on the dot. <laughs> Bingo.
0: Thank you for listening to uncertain things. We are com where we have a newsletter too. And uh wherever you get your podcasts, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts if you want to support us and share us with your friends and enemies. Until next time. Stay sane.